Welcome to episode 8 of the Jibs Podcast. Today we speak with Greek Tea, whose motto is drink tea, educate a refugee. It's just about getting up and doing it and like, you know, finding the time, finding the people and making it happen. You take control and you say, okay, this needs to be done and you do it. And you're never ready to start a business. You just <laughs> either, you either do it or you don't. Welcome to the Jibs Podcast, showcasing Detroit's movers and shakers, bringing you stories that reveal the gusto and grit that's long defined the city and its people. Together, we'll uncover the history and direction of the Motor City, one voice at a time. This is the Jibs Podcast with Jabron Ahmed. Welcome to episode eight of the Jibs Podcast. I am here with Ali and Saad from RE-T. Um, let's get right into it. Can you guys kind of explain who you are uh, and your backgrounds? Sure. Let's start? Let's start? Yeah. So my name is Saad Saad. Uh, when you say who we are and our backgrounds, just let me know if you want to clarify anything else. So, yeah, absolutely. I am uh, co-founder of RE-T, and in addition to working at RE-T, I also teach at a university, I teach negotiation and conflict resolution, so that's how I balance myself. Cool. My name is Ali Bezi, co-founder of RETI. Um, my uh, 9 to 5, I would say, is I do consulting for uh, automotive dealerships, helping them with their online presence, um, marketing, sales, things like that. Yeah. So can you guys tell me a little bit, a little bit about RETI? Sure. Um, so I'm trying how we started, right? Yeah. So Saad had just finished uh, Columbia University with his uh, master's in conflict resolution. Was trying to start up a nonprofit. We're first cousins, so that's how we know each other. Yeah. And we were talking over dinner, and he was talking about how it was difficult to get funding, and uh, you know to get up off the ground. He wants to do this work, and it was uh, North Africa, Middle East. Yeah. Um, so we're going through, and I'm like, well. An easy way to get revenue is easy, quote unquote, is to um, sell a product and use the proceeds from it. You know, social mission focused products are, you know, getting more and more popular. You know, so it's easier to, to get those things up off the ground. Right. So that's how the idea kind of sparked. So I had been looking for something where I I wanted to be able to start being able to give back more, using my talents for for things like that. Right. So we uh, we said, all right. We need to do two things. One, we need to figure out what type of product would work well, um, and two, what social mission related to conflict resolution that we could, you know, figure out. So, from a product standpoint, we're having dinner and we're drinking tea. So, you know, tea, you know, we're both of uh, Arab descent, and tea is something very popular within our culture. And based on you know research that we started doing, we realized it's actually quite popular around the world. Outside the United States, it's the number two consumed beverage after water. Within the United States, how low is it? I, it's pretty low, but the most consumed liquid in the U.S. up to 2013 is actually Coca-Cola. People in the U.S. drink more Coke than they did water. No way. Which we found is like, absolutely, like, that's crazy, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, looking at that, I was like, okay, I think there's an opportunity here. Yeah. Okay. So, we started going down the path, I went that a little bit, and then we were like, okay, we may have something there, right? Um, and then we are like, okay, from the social aspect of what... Do we start, you know, what seed do we plant and, and, and start working with that? So from a conflict resolution standpoint, there's a huge refugee crisis, right? So that's kind of where we started looking into refugee. So it's like two or three years ago when the Syrian refugee crisis really began to sort of get really bad. Yeah, yeah so it's in, the, it's in the news. Obviously, there's conflict-related um, pieces there. So we're like, okay, let's, let's look into this a bit. And we found quite quickly that uh, children 
that are refugees or situations based on war, conflict, uh, natural disaster, you quickly lose access to education. Yeah. And the UN says that anytime scenarios like that where there are refugees involved, um, if 4%, only 4% of the funds that are dedicated to helping those refugees, so food, uh, water, shelter, and all that kind of stuff, if 4% is dedicated to education, then those kids will be able to continue to be educated. Less than 2% right. is there. So obviously, in those situations, we're talking about millions of dollars, but we're not talking about a, a huge undertaking. We're not talking about having to undertake that whole thing. It's mm -hmm. just a piece of it and trying to get that percentage up. Um, so we started looking into to that piece. You want to elaborate a little more on the side? Did more research there. Um, the refugee. Yeah. So what we found was that often when refugees move to other countries as a result of natural disaster or whatever, maybe they're often not integrated into public schooling system, which leaves them in refugee camps without public schooling system. And obviously, a kid or a teenager that's not going to school all day, then what else are they doing? Right? They lose out on a lot of opportunities to grow and develop, and then they also mm -hmm. lose out on the potential opportunity to be in school that they would naturally be in had they not been in the environment that they were forced into. Right. And that a child, this is from the UN again, a child that loses one year of school is coined the term a lost generation. Mm -hmm. That's how far far back they can fall losing one year of school. A child that loses one month of school, it's almost like they've, they've fallen that far behind, you know, uh, a year's worth of school. So it's one of those things where keep that continuity there. What can we do to help keep that continuity there? So we looked into nonprofits that were working in Iran. So the, our, our main nonprofit we work with uh, when we first started was the International Rescue Committee. They actually have a program called the Year School. So you can actually dedicate funds to that, and they will educate a child for a whole year. So you know, books, school, you know, temporary school, uh, the shelters, the schools, that that whole thing. So we're like, okay, you know, there there's something there. So then this is where we kind of kicked off my career. Let's really hit the ground, do research, you know, figure out what's going on here, both from a T perspective and from the social mission and the messaging there, you know, how and see how it resonates. All together. <laughs> and, you know, can we bring it together in a way that resonates well, clear, succinct, and, and short? You know, we can't, you know, we talk about that elevator pitch, how <laughs> you know, and this T and refugees, what are you guys, what, what is that? Right. Does that make any sense exactly. together? So, um, from a tea perspective, we did probably close to a year's worth of research. Yeah. Why why don't people drink tea here? You know? And so it, popular in other parts of the world. Why 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 wasn't it like why why don't people drink tea here? They drink a lot of coffee, they drink a lot of other beverages. Why is tea just not something that people have on regular basis? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um so we found I think it fell down it fell down again, quite of research to four main points, you know. Um it tastes like flavor water. And that falls kind of that, uh, how do you make it, the potency of the, the drink and such. Uh, it goes bitter. You know, there that go, goes kind of the quality of the tea and things like that. I don't know how to make it. You know, um, what do I got to do to make it? What tools do I need? How do I do that? And those are all barriers, you know? Um, and then there's too much choice. You walk into a store and it's like, whoa, there's a there's hundred things to choose from and I don't know what to choose, you know? So we said, okay, if we can work on those four things, would that be something that, well, A, is a product that people want, and B, consume it regularly. Right. So what we said is, all right, we're going to make a short menu of teas, high quality teas that are easy to make and that are all full of flavor and delicious. Okay. Um, so we, hundreds of teas yeah. we tasted. I've tasted, tested, sourced <laughs> so many different teas and played with so many different blends. And 
we went back and forth so much because we'd source things, we'd blend things. I would try to be like, yeah, maybe this is it. I would try to be like, definitely this is not it. And then Ali has a, a what do they call it? A taste super taster. taster. Yeah. So like, so like a quarter percent of the population, right. yeah. um, I either come super taste. So it's either you have more taste buds or your taste buds hold on to yeah. you know, different things, you know, what they hold on to longer. Um, so like you make things bitter for a longer time or things like that. Um, so that was one thing that we kind of brought in, kind of like a bit of a scientific piece to it. You know, the whole super taster piece and people can taste particular things and what does that mean for people enjoying this, mm -hmm. you know? Um, people so, often would say that tea is complicated and we wanted to make sure on the flavor profile that that was the last experience that they would ever have with the tea, that it was just super approachable, super easy to enjoy. Mm -hmm. So we sourced a lot of different teas and tested and blended to make sure that that's what we would end up getting. Yeah. What we found is, you know, full, full of flavor, you know, our unique proprietary recipes that work really well and are forgiving, you know, as you put it and you go through that whole process and then um, uh, watch the bitter profile. Right. That, that was the whole thing with the super taster piece. People that would be like, oh, that's bitter. And I'd be like, uh, and I ask a few follow-up questions. I'm like, yeah, you're probably a super taster. <laughs> you know, so we, that's when kind of would start relying on those people to, from a bitter profile, did you taste bitter there? Was it, was it there? Was it not? Because right. actually people just don't taste it at all. Yeah. So those, those are some of the, some of the major things that we were, we were looking through. Um, and then we kind of started honing in on the flavors. I ended up with four main Star flavors that are yeah, very, very popular. And to this day are still our four main yeah. popular yeah. flavors. Um, and then we expanded to, to 10. And we said in the beginning, like, we can't go more than 12. Yeah. It'd be too much. You know? And we're at 10 and it's been, it's been working well. Um, and then from a, from a refugee standpoint, we really worked on that. On the message there, trying to figure out you know, how, do we, how do we integrate this piece. Um, so that's where we came up with our slogan: "Drink tea, educate a refugee." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, a lot of different slogans before we came up with something catchy like that. Yeah. So, um, so we kind of explained it on our website. We explained it on our packaging. Uh, we found that you know, quantifying it. So you, you know, you see other brands doing like one for one type things. Right. So we're like, well, how can we quantify this? It's, it's actually quite difficult to quantify. Um, you know, you buy a pouch of tea, what does that mean for a refugee, you know? Um, so based on um, some calculations that we've done internally, um, we are able to do the, you know, a one for five or a one for ten based on the size of the pouch you have. So one, one pouch, ten, up to ten hours of education, one pouch up to five hours of education. Um, and then, you know, a portion of those proceeds are going to that. But it really depends, you know, on the, the country that they're in. Obviously, a refugee in the United States the cost of educating them would be higher than a refugee perhaps in Afghanistan, you know? So, you know, we're very transparent in that and, and in what we're trying to do, but we found that it really does resonate um, because if you keep a child, and it really breaks down to this when we talk, when we break it down to people, if you keep a child in school and you keep them educated, it helps them, it helps their family, and it helps their community, you know? Um, there's parts of the world where due to, again, whether it's war, natural disaster, whatever it is, and a child or a, a generation loses access to education 5, 10, 15 years. Well, now that child is 20, 25 years old, doesn't have the education that education level that perhaps, you know, would, would help them in this global market, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's there, and even locally, um, and um, needs to find a job and support their family, and, what are they going to do? Yeah. And it almost becomes like a, a downward spiral because if conflict breaks out and 
you know, you can get to all these different things, but it's, it's as with even here in the United States, what do we always focus on? Jobs, education, jobs, and education. It's, it's the same thing no matter where you go. Educate your population and, and have have jobs and keep people able to, s- to support their families, support themselves. You know, they want to have a good education. You know, yeah. so yeah. I think that's really apparent, especially after watching the Betsy DeVos mm-hmm. um, oh. interview. <laughs> I haven't seen the full clip, but right. Uh, so uh, packet. Uh, a package of tea translates into 10 hours of education. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that 10 hours exactly look like? Is that 10 hours of a teacher sure. teaching sure. a classroom? Sure. So what we do is we allocate the funding to our partners, International Rescue Committee. <coughs> Excuse me. They're taking that funds basically. And they're supporting refugee education programs and whatever whatever it takes to, to run those refugee education programs. So it could be funding a teacher's you know salary in order for that teacher to be in front of the classroom, but it could be uh, funding class material like books or, or pencils or desks, chairs, desks or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, or even transportation getting uh, those kids to school. So whatever it takes to get those kids in school, that's where the funding is going to. So it's not just in particular teacher being from the classroom. Right. And what we'd like to do is get to a point, hopefully, as we grow and get larger, um, is to start allocating, you know, proceeds into, for lack of a better term, into like a fund or, or, or a nonprofit organization where it has a similar focus, but and <clears throat> when natural disasters happen or when it's imminent and let's say the UN says, hey, there's there's an extreme need here and for, you know, it's going to cost $10,000 to put up temporary, temporary school buildings and desks and immediately get these, these schools up and going. Mm-hmm. Well, then, the, you know, this this foundation, wherever it is, this fund that we can set up, we cut a check and send it to them and get it up and going, mm-hmm. you know? And whether it's UN or work, we want to start working with some, you know, nonprofits that are on the ground that are getting this done, just to have it immediately where the, where the need is immediate, we can, mm-hmm. we can do that, you know, in, in addition to the constant you know, one for 10, one for five type, um, type giving. Um, and then be transparent with all of that so that people see, you know, you have this product that you enjoy that is a product that could stand alone and do well and, you know, it's, it's doing good beyond the product itself. So I guess on that note, you know, a lot of companies um, are purely for-profit. There's no social mission attached to what they're doing. So in your opinion, how important has it been for your bottom line to have this social mission attached. Yeah. So I. Do you mind if I say something? Yeah. We learned very quickly early on that you got to build a good product for people to purchase it. Right. Yeah. So it could be an an amazing social mission and really captivating and, and people love it, but they're not going to purchase that product regularly if they don't enjoy having that product and that product doesn't solve some kind of need for them. So. With that said, early on we figured that out and we wanted to make sure that we really deliver on the product in the sense that we wanted to make sure that our product provided an incentive for the customer to come back and purchase it. And that incentive wasn't in the social mission, but rather it was in the tea and the flavor that that profile of tea provided. And, and especially with a, with a beverage or a consumable, if you have something that doesn't taste good, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. That, that, there's, there's a, well, not only that, you taste it once, like, oh, that didn't taste good. It, it's, there's, a, there's a deep connection that happens there, you know, and it's like, I tasted that, and I, I don't want to taste that again. Whereas where you have other products that aren't consumables, 
I would think people would probably give it a give it a shot again, or you see somebody else, or you can just test that butt with uh, something that doesn't taste good. I don't want to taste that again. Yeah. You know, so yeah, really fall fall down to the yeah. product itself and being a good standalone product. That was our our always thing. We wanted to be able to take your product, put it down, and have it sell itself. So how do you so just starting the company itself? How do you go from a prototype to even learning about how how to make tea yeah. to your first product? A lot of testing. Yeah. A lot of you know making some mistakes and trying some teas that don't taste good at all. Yeah. Uh, so we relied a lot on a lot on family and friends. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for testing, for for our prototyping, for packaging, yeah. color, name. I mean, we're realizing from a approachability standpoint. Absolutely. Um, the name really mattered, and we even did it before. Where name of the tea? The name of the tea specifically, you know, um, where that was one of the things again. Is tea approachable? People walk into a place and here's this foreign sounding name, you know, of something that I'd never heard of. Yeah. How am I supposed to understand what that could possibly tastes like? Right. You know. So I'll give you an example, and we're transparent on this. Our toasty tea mm-hmm. is traditionally a ginmaicha. But if you go to somebody and say, this is again my show, unless they've experienced that or, or know what that is, like, I have no idea what that would taste like. You know, especially in a packaging that we have where it's closed if you're buying it on a store shelf okay. or buying it online. Um, so we're like, we can't call it my show. Yeah. We have to call it something else. So we did a lot of testing. So we we'd sell at the Eastern Market and we would taste this, or we would test different names of yeah. the tea and okay did it sell better take name this did it sell better and it would make a difference the name alone would approach would, would it would catch interest or right. you know, sometimes it wouldn't catch any interest at all people yeah. wouldn't try it just because of the name that's in the pack. exactly yeah. and then even like our uh, one of our top sellers is our Assam Black which is a right. it's my favorite uh, uh, black tea to have uh, uh, so we originally were like okay we want to make uh, uh, the black teas easier the base black tea is easier for people to choose from mm-hmm. and so we got like uh, examples like uh, coffee right you know you got bold you got light you got medium and all that so we said well let's just do that with the tea we'll go light you know uh what do we call it light, light black medium black. yeah exactly light black medium black and we we're still working on our bold um we could not give away <laughs> so light black is our assam today it's when it's the same thing. When same we were renamed it, different name. Oh yeah, that's it. When we, people, you know, at the Eastern Market, it's such a great place to test because people would come and see the package they interact with it, and we too would they pick up and we'd ask, "What sample would you like to try?" Have all of them a sample. And the name that just distance people. Yeah. Yeah. So why do you think people stayed away from that? Uh, the name would either be inviting or not inviting, yeah. or it would. Uh, I don't know. It's so I think even with the, what we did with the light and the medium, I just uh, read a book by uh, Maxwell. What was? So Malcolm, Malcolm Maxwell, yeah, uh, <laughs> Blink. It was actually it was it was very very interesting, and they, they, they did analysis uh, related to uh, uh, coffee, and how you know if you were to ask people, oh, what type of coffee do you really enjoy? People are like, oh, I want a robust, a bold tasting coffee. But then if you actually look at sales, he goes, everybody's wrong. What everybody realizes is some large percentage is uh, weak. Uh, uh, right medium you know flavor right. coffee you know that's that's where the sales are but people people won't tell you that so that was another thing that we learned very quickly how to ask questions what does that feedback mean how much do we weigh that feedback mm-hmm. you know because we people were telling us oh i wish it was easier if i could just scale that you could tell me like medium and, and, and right. bold and, and go um we did that it didn't work 
we renamed it and now top sellers. Yeah. So it was the whole approachability thing and testing and relying on friends and family and feedback from customers and, and just really being able to be nimble and take that feedback and understand what that feedback is yeah. and how does that affect it. And like anytime we were like, so when we started first making our packaging, we, we label by hand. We make the labels in house and go somewhere to you know, this laser printer and print those and put those on and do all of that in house. Why? Because if we need to make an adjustment, we just go on to our design, adjust the name, put it on there, and see what happens. Whereas, like, if you want to do a manufacturing run and spend, oh, we need to do a thousand of these labels. Easy. It would it would be significantly higher because you would have to make commitments to this specific name, this specific style, this specific ingredients, and it would have to go on there. You would have to sell ten thousand of them before you go on to the next batch. Whereas with us, if we wanted to come up with a new flavor profile or just change the name, let's go on the desktop, change the name, print that label, put it on the bag, let's go to the market, let's see what feedback we get on it. And that really helped us learn quite a bit, learn right. really fast too. Right. Your packaging is beautiful, by the way. I think it's so good. What kind of advice would you have for somebody wanting to start a product-based company? So we were at a food conference in uh, November and we were talking with uh, a woman and she said she had just launched her product. I use this as an example. And um, we were talking about it and I was like, oh yeah, we did a ton of research beforehand. Now we had, you know, we're lucky that we had the ability to, to do that so people don't. But we had the ability to do it probably years worth of research and testing and to go through and what's going to work and what's not. What can sell if you just put it down and sell on its own and sell itself without you having to pitch it, you know? And we really focused on that. It was ultimately really put it on this coffee table and would somebody pick it up? Would somebody right. be interested in it? What's that tactile response? Are they going to read it? That whole thing before we brought the product to market. I was like, we can't bring it to market unless it can sell itself. So doing a lot of research beforehand to bring a viable product and tweak and adjust and use your friends, use your family. If you have a connection at a store where you can put it out there and see if it moves and see if it doesn't move, where does it move, where does it not move, test, 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 test. We never will be able to change. Yeah. This woman that we had spoke with, we, I went through all I was like, oh yeah, we did this and the other thing. She goes, I wish I would have done that. I've done so much money into this trying to get it up off the ground and I haven't done that research yet. Right. And I'm like, I was just, I was, I, I was surprised because, you know, getting getting a product up off the ground can be very expensive. Yeah. You know? right. So the, doing that research, getting that feedback, being able to be nimble, being able to adjust. What, what do you think? Is that? I would say just, you know, when Ali says doing that research, like we were able to prototype a lot of things without making any commitments to anything, to any suppliers, to any distributors, because we wanted feedback on tea, then we would just take that blend and. We'll have five of our friends try it and get feedback and before we made any commitment to build this product we knew whether people were going to like this or not or we knew whether it satisfied the need or the problem that we were trying to solve so um, just setting yourself up to be able to do that and knowing that you can do that and learn all these things for practically really cheap or really free really helps you continue to build because there's a lot of learning that you need to go through before you have a scalable business and to be able to do that with minimal commitments and minimal resources where you're really focused on learning will really set you up to be able to do that if that makes sense and, I, and another thing I would add is don't get don't you're going to have setbacks right yeah. don't get down on yourself and for, for example you can you can ask somebody all, all day long oh would you buy this oh yes I would 
the ultimate test is when you put it down and will they really spend the money. And then when we launched our site and, and, and put that up, we were like, okay, let's let's see if this works. And we were ready to be like, okay, this may succeed or it may fail, but we know that we're gonna adjust and go, you know, and, and be able to do that. Mindset in that also plays a big part because, you know, we've had ups and downs, you know, so we've had, I mean, we have a store in New York that um, did really, really well um, for months. Um, and then, you know, whatever, whatever happened there at that store with their, with their adjustments and changing and all that, we, we aren't there anymore, you know, and they it's one of those, order. they just stopped ordering. And it's one of those, okay, you know, you're, you're obviously making a profit on it. You're obviously selling it very well. You, you, we see coming in there, we're supplying it. That's one of your top sellers, yeah. but it is what it is. And you've got to be, be able to kind of roll the punches and adjust and tweak and, yeah. And, and go, you know. Also, testing means wasting a lot of time because a lot of the times you test and you don't learn something, or a lot of the times you test and like you don't necessarily solve your problem just because you put a test together or learn about what you're trying to solve. So just be, be ready for that. Yeah. You're, you're going to waste time naturally. Yeah. yeah. So, starting a small business in Michigan, I've gotten to talk to a lot of different types of entrepreneurs. Who have told me one of two things mm -hmm. they feel like they don't have a lot of support in Detroit um, from the local governments or from like small business administration or whatever and then there are people that are like oh there's so many resources here uh, that right. are really helping us out what has your thought on that and where yeah. are you from so I live in New York yeah so for me there's a lot of resources here available to small business when you said what you said early on the first time like oh, yeah. well, we came to Detroit because we feel like there's resources here not only in the sense that there's resources available from government and maybe other institutions but people have the time and are willing and are supportive and are giving like we just meet random people at the Eastern market that would just give us so much more than you know I don't want to say that people in New York but my experience in New York is everybody's got something to do it's really difficult to get a hold of a buyer. Nobody's going to answer your email unless they know you or there's an introduction. You're going to get a few minutes from somebody. That's the max because everybody's got so much going on. Whereas here, it was like everybody was like so supportive and so giving and so like, and, and we were able to find resources to mm -hmm. build a product from, like the common kitchen space that we use. And that's that's where I'm at. No, I, I agree. I think that uh, there there have been. There have been a ton of resources. I think no matter where you are, and I think this is one of our strengths as well, is, you know, to be able to, you have to be a go-getter. You got to be able to go out there and say, I need to find this out. Even even here, you know, sometimes you don't get a hold of people. You need to go, you need to find that out. I, and we, we, were, we were fortunate enough to be able to decide, do we want to launch in New York? Because um, it's sad, you know, had the main lives out of there and commutes back and forth between here in Detroit. Um, or do we want to do here in Detroit? Obviously, we're from Detroit. You know, we're from this area, born, born and raised for myself. Sad immigrated when he was young. But, uh, and, and we wanted to, but it's like, where do we think our product has the best shot? And after doing the research, and, and really, like Sad was saying, being able to access people, being able to call yeah. and talk to somebody, somebody pick up the phone and, and, and telling you something, it's like, okay, I think there's more viability here, yeah. you know, in, in that comparison. But again, you, you also, you gotta be prepared. Nobody's gonna give it to you. Yeah. You know, you gotta be able to know, okay, I need to figure this out. Okay, there's this problem and you need to find a solution. You know, if the solution doesn't exist, then you need to make it, mm -hmm. you know? But uh, I, that's really supportive here. I don't know. That's how I feel. Yeah. yeah. 
So both of you have full-time jobs. Mm -hmm. um, so what, personally for both of you, motivates you to want to build this business, be focused on the mission, and just keep going? So from on, on the tea product itself, there's there's a market for it. You know, when when my wife and I've been married for almost ten years now, and she she loves tea, right? And she kept trying to get me into it, and I keep trying these different teas, and I'm like, I don't know what it's not. and I wanted to get into it, um, just in the sense that sometimes I would enjoy some teas, and I was like, I just don't know what it what what it what's there, you know. And it's one of those things where you realize there's a niche, you know, there's a niche there you know and we can possibly provide the solution for it mm -hmm. you know especially a a a product that has such a history to me itself thousands of years we can bring it here to the american market you know in a different way you know approach it in a different way so i think that's exciting you know and then and then there's the social mission piece it's we want to help these kids you know um you know, we we came. We, you know, we're both of Lebanese descent, and we came from you know a situation where, at least for me, you know, the kids from from our background had it and could make do. But then you know, there's there were these kids in the Palestinian refugee camps. Yeah. You know that didn't have it as, as easy. And then there's uh, you just see it more and more, and it's just like these kids, they they want to learn. You, you know, in our research, you see. You want to live a normal life. What do they say? I want to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. I want to be, you know, the same things that you have kids here, you know, and they're the whole system to support them. It's gone. It's disturbing. It's disturbing. So give them education so they can help themselves, their family, and their community. They can be the solution, you know. And that 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 really drives me. You know, anytime we get down and we have a setback, I go at least we gotta help these kids, you know. And we have a product that people want, and and can do it, you know. Mm. TM refugee. How does that work? All right. We found a way, I guess. All right. Yeah. I, uh, so I used to teach English in Turkey, yeah. and this was 2014. Sure. And so around June, July, I was in Istanbul, yeah. and you know everything was normal. And then I can remember the next day, I was in the in the main touristy areas. There was thousands and thousands of refugees yeah. who had just come from yeah. uh, one of the major attacks, right? Yeah. And I can remember I was with my friend. I don't speak Arabic, but my friend, he speaks Arabic. And this kid came up to us, and he was like 10. And he's like, you know, you know I just saw both my parents get killed. I'm taking care of my five-year-old brother. Um, is there any way that you can help us out, right? Yeah. So we gave him whatever money we had, but... Then what? Right. I... I that's the worst feeling, yeah. is not being able to provide anything else. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. So that's the thing, like, you don't see it. You don't see it here, you know, but when you're, like, in Lebanon or in other places, you see it. Like, we were in, a few years back, I was in Lebanon, we were driving on the freeway, and there was kids barefoot, there's a lot of traffic on the freeway, would come up to cars selling gum, very small things to try to, you know, you're talking, like, five, six, four, it's, it's crazy, it's crazy. And I was just, like, in shock, because... Now you see them in Lebanon because there's a million refugees there, which is like 25% of the population. And yeah, there's a lot of resources that goes to you know, meeting maybe basic needs of food, water, and shelter. And then what? Then what happens? You know, because then what? I mean, even if you can, if it was a fall day here, mm -hmm. and you saw a kid that's supposed to be in school, not in school, 
What do we want? What do we say? Why isn't this kid in school? What's going on? What do we got to do? You got millions of kids. Yeah. You know, they, what are they doing? What are they doing? They want to be in school. Right. So, you know. So I mean, I, I think people connect with it here. I think everybody connects with. You see a child, it's like, why? Why aren't you in school? You know. It's. It, I think there's a visceral connection to just. We need to help these kids and and, and everybody that is education. As a company, as an organization, where where do you see REIT in five years, ten years? Everybody's drinking REIT. So tea is something that I drink every day on a regular basis, and I feel like you know, it's drank around the world and in some places, some places consume per average like six or seven cups per person per day. Yeah. You know, so. Tea should be and can be an everyday beverage, and it can be enjoyed like that. And, and there's plenty of options for people that they're not seriously, or they're not necessarily exposed to that they could be. Yeah, it's hard. Some of the that are yeah. I think, from a very broad sense, like Sad was saying, people are consuming more tea, and right? we want to, we would like to consume more tea. You know, yeah. um, we 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 want to try to help facilitate that perception mm-hmm. change. Where it's difficult because we there's also that nimble piece. How do we get there? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know. There's there's being in stores. We're talking about working with distributors. There's online sales, uh, cafes. There's there's all these different markets that we can try to be in. Can you be in in a mall? How long does it take to do that? It's it's. I find it. I don't find it really difficult to answer that question without just saying. I think I people, think people the perceptual process is something that we definitely want to sort of break down. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, people, Where, people, yeah. people, people perceiving tea in a different way. Yeah, people, people, you know, I had a friend that like, so tea is not approachable. It's fancy, or it's like it's perceived as something that only like you know, if you're smart and you drink it at one p.m. <laughs> and you have your kiki up in the air with it, you know. And, there's a, like tea is not approachable in those ways, and I, I think that's definitely something that we want to try and break down. So that's yeah. I mean, uh, for about forty percent of uh, the, our customers were tea drinkers until they started consuming our tea. Yeah. You know, we were we're in a store now where they put us in like the Made in Michigan section, and then we had people contact us and say, "I can't find your tea there." Like, well, where did you go? I went to the tea aisle, and we're like. Yeah, we need to be in the tea aisle as well. Uh, we consciously said, don't put us in the tea aisle because of perception. Because we knew that, okay, 40% of our customers aren't tea drinkers. They're not going to be in the tea aisle. Mm-hmm. You know? So, you know, where do we put us and how do we do that? There's there's still a lot to, to, for us to learn that's going to relate to perception. And it, it's the whole purchase journey, you know? Yeah. From, you know, when they see it to when they... Uh, touch it to they purchase it to they brew it to they consume it and we cycle it back through yeah. you know um, five years from now I don't know, I'd be happy five years from now to, to have a strong regional presence in the Midwest you know to be able to do something really good here in Detroit and understand you know what that formula is and, and be able to repeat it in other major cities mm-hmm. Chicago Cleveland Indianapolis, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, uh, and kind of learn, continue to be humble. 
So I kind of guess I'm kind of thinking out loud as well. <laughs> no, that's great. So. Can you see your ET being your full time job? I think it's possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hope so. I'm definitely hoping for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we've been, I think we've, we've gone, like a lot of the stuff that you've gone over. Mm -hmm. Although the five year question, we haven't yeah. really kind of talked about that. Like how it changes. We've said it to so many people, and our, our thing is when we get, when we're able to talk to people about it and they get it. You know, it, it's hard to have an elevator pitch because you got, okay, I need to talk to you about the TPs, I need to talk about social mission, and I need to find, find a way to tie it in. Right. Um, right. But when you sit and you talk about it with somebody, you're like, wow, and, and it, it's memorable, and people walk away, you know, with it in a positive light. Right. And I'm like, how do we articulate that without it always being us in front of people? So, like, when you reach out to us, I'm like, right. fantastic. Because I know that I noticed that, you, you know, you do the video piece of it, too. Yeah. So I was like, okay, if he posts that and you yeah. put that on our website and our about us, yeah. especially nowadays, where people were like, they might not read it, but they'll go to the video and watch it, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'm like, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. That's us being able to pitch without, you know, having to physically do it. For sure. You know? Um, so I was like, oh, fantastic. You post these all on YouTube, right? Yeah, and post them all on YouTube. And that, and that was the big point of it, is that, if I'm reaching out to people to get them on my podcast, I want them to realize that this is also a piece of marketing material that they can use. Yeah, and what I love about it is it's not us recording something; it's you doing something, yeah. and then we put that put that up. You know, yeah. I and mean, I think people connect with that. Oh, here's, and I think it's good to have. Hopefully, uh, we get a ton of attention. Everybody watches the video and, <laughs> and, and, and sees your stuff. So I think I think a lot of people. Look, it's almost like um, the word that comes to mind is like a networking thing, but it's not really that. It's Oh, here's somebody doing something interesting, and wants to bring somebody interesting, and then and people, it's real, you know. And I hope they you know this, this comes off as a real conversation. People like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that, that's what's up. That's cool. Uh, how do you actually? Something I didn't ask is, what kind of as somebody from like the Middle Eastern community? Obviously, there's a huge population here. Right. Um, do you feel like they are supportive of small businesses? I think they're supportive. Of, I very much think they're supportive of small businesses, um, whether you're Middle Eastern or not. I mean, there's a lot of immigrants here, yeah. and I've noticed that you know if you, if, you know oh, I mean I remember we're talking where are you from this and blah 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 and it, and it works. Yeah. Uh, you know you kind of you kind of the the walls come down easier. But I found really across the board, no matter who we come to, whether they're immigrant or not, I think it's just much of a trade. Yeah. Because there are so many immigrants that it's just everybody's kind of used to it and, and the walls can, can come down very easily. Yeah. I will tell you, brought up not to go off topic, okay, we're of Middle Eastern descent, we have a lot of people that drink tea and, and all that. <laughs> right. So we're actually in Hashem's Market is a, uh, it's like a, it's like a Whole Foods for like the uh, Arab American. Yeah. Like it's just a specialty, you know? Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting store. So, okay. We decided to do demos like on Wednesdays where we put a cafe with brew tea ready to go. The owner there, he kind of with people waiting in line, he'll put a cup for them so they can purchase. And it, it did really well the first the first time we had gone through. So we tried the different flavors and everything. Then when we tried our Islam, which is which is a I should have brought you some, which yeah. is um, I'll, I'll I'll get you some, which is some of our I think it's it's if our basic black tea is just delicious. Well, oh, I had it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think it's just delicious, and I love how the leaves get big and all that kind of stuff. But it's a nice black, basic black tea you can have all, all the time. It's similar to the black tea 
that like the Lebanese and Syrian community will have. Yeah. So I was like, how is this going to do against, honestly, at cheaper in cost and at presenting quality for some of the teas that are there? Um, how's it going to do? You know? And so I, was, I spent a little more time when I was there, and people were thinking, wow, that's expensive. Compared to compared to other now they're, they're different teas. It's not that Assam tea, you know, mm-hmm. and the other tea does go better much much more quickly. Yeah, and I noticed, yeah. yeah. And like I'm the type that say, pour me the fresh cup, or I'm not having it because yeah. it was better right right away. Um, one of our most popular teas, Assam, if we were except where people are already drinking <laughs> a black tea, <laughs> right. you know, and then not do so well. So it's just it's 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 interesting. You have to see the pockets that you're going in, and that's the thing I'm not sure to try. You got all these pockets, mm-hmm. so you got to understand. You know, if you go to a pocket where they yeah. they drink, I don't know, something similar to our uh, cinnamon orange, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that might not be popular because now we're competing against that, and what's the price point and all that kind of stuff. So that's interesting. Yeah. In and of itself. You know what I didn't notice about that is like at the Eastern Market, everybody is willing. We're a small business, right? And Everybody was supportive, and everybody was supportive. The fact that we were a small business and we were on the trials over other stuff that they can find in the grocery store, because tea, you have stuff that's, I mean, you have stuff that's two or three dollars or four dollars, which obviously were more expensive than that. But a lot of people you know, will let them pay extra because of the fact that we were a small business and we were in Detroit. That makes sense. Detroit has a very um, strong brand. Yeah. Yeah. If you. You slap to try on something, and somebody's going to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. Depending on who's doing the slapping and what brand. Yeah, exactly. exactly. What they're planning to do. <laughs> you know the story behind Chinola? No, tell me. So they did like a research, because he, he wanted to start a, a business somewhere with, with watches. I think the founder of Chinola uh, used to work at the Fossil. Really? You know? Yeah. So. Did you not start with the bikes first, then the watches? I thought they did the watches first. Was it the watches first? Yeah. Anyway, long story short, they were trying to, they were trying to figure out where, where, where are we going to do this. We want to do it in the U.S., we have a U.S. made type thing. So they did a research study and they, they said, okay, here's a pen. Okay? It's made in China. How much, how much would you pay for it? And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like uh, 10 cents. Okay? It's made in the U.S.A. How much would you pay for it? A dollar. Okay? It's made in Detroit. How much would you pay for it? Or they listed all these cities. Detroit was one of those ones that's like ten dollars, like something like some huge number compared. You know, it, it was, it was like a proportion like that. So there, there's this perception of Detroit, which is, which is, which is interesting. Which we're lucky. We're from it makes there. Makes sense, right? Manufacturing companies, car companies for so long. But you would think, you know, in the media, all Detroit being bankrupt and you right. know, these bad things that are happening in Detroit. You, it's almost like a really, and it's like. It makes you realize that you know maybe it's not people don't have the worst impression you know with with you know the things that are that were I would say were happening I mean the city's making a huge comeback yeah you know um, but we found that interesting now it it's not it's not that it necessarily influenced our decision we have to have it in Detroit versus Cleveland or here right you know what I mean yeah. but it was a positive thing you know yeah no I yeah I definitely think people are willing to pay a pay a premium price for Detroit based product. Wasn't Chanola not making their watches in Detroit? Really? They assembled them. Yeah. That's where I think what happened. It's like the parts, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think the, the parts weren't made here, but then they'd come here and then they were put together. And then I think they may have moved, and I don't know if they put them together in Detroit anymore at all. I think the bikes may still be. Yeah, they make the bikes in shop. I, I went to yeah. one of those. Nice. Yeah, those are cool. 
Well, I don't know if the watches are anymore. Right. I don't That's know. I don't know. They've done some international. Has watches. They have bikes. They have turntables, and they're gonna have a hotel. Yeah, I'm excited to see the hotel. Right. <laughs> It'll look good. It'll look good. Look good. I wonder if they'll serve retail there. There's a new hotel, the Siren. The yeah, hotel. I've heard of that. Yeah. I feel like I'm on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, that'd be sweet. To yeah. Trying to, we're just trying to figure out the whole thing. You know what's what's difficult is we've gone into a couple of cafes and we go we won't talk to IT. It's still that. So the analogy I get, yeah. if you look at coffee back in the eighties, right? It was the folders, the, whatever you had to have because you just needed the coffee. The taste just was not there, right? Yeah. But now if you look at what happened in the nineties, two thousands, now, did did the coffee bean itself change? No. Access to quality. And perception, mm. flavor, brewing the Starbucks and Seattle's best and and local uh, <clears throat> mom pop shops that came in and said, well, what are we gonna do with it? How how can we do? How can we make this better? You know, this this thing can't. You're not gonna change the coffee bean, but you know, access to the varieties and all that kind of stuff. Right. So there's perception that needs to be broken down, and and that's really again the fault. Same thing falls for tea. And that's what we're trying to do. And if you notice, there's big companies that are, are getting into the, into the market. Mm-hmm. But um, hopefully they're the ones that change the perception. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I support you guys. Thank you. Uh, cool. For people listening, can you tell people uh, if you have anything coming out that's really exciting or where they can find you? Yeah. So, uh, so you can find us in all, if you're in the local Detroit area, all Westbournes. What is it? Pavonia, Dearborn, Berkeley. And Plymouth. Plymouth. Uh, uh, in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, Nest, uh, in Canfield in Detroit. Uh, Hashings Market in Dearborn Heights. Uh, we're in uh, a couple of pure Detroit locations. Um, and then we're working on some more. And then also we have our website, getretea.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can purchase online and we'll ship anywhere in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working on, right now we're a loose team. We're working on a bagged solution. Um, trying to figure that whole piece out, making sure that we keep the quality from a whole leaf perspective, mm-hmm. um, and then what people would want um, from there. I'd love in the next couple of years to have a, a cold iced tea, iced tea mm-hmm. kind of yeah. uh, so, solution there. But um, yeah. Cool. Well, Saad, Ali, thank you so much for coming by. Um, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for listening, and until our next episode, stay tuned.